So, we're going to go to 2 Peter, and we're going to do this book for the next three weeks. And we do have Zechariah left, and the reason we skipped that book is because Pastor John is actually going to do that for us. And so he's going to preach Zechariah after he finishes Ephesians um, sometime in the future. That's all we can say. So go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. In the ancient city of Rome, uh, there were not many prisons. Historians are aware of only a couple prisons that were designed for the most violent and dangerous prisoners. Men who were condemned to death. In the heart of Rome, right in the city center and near the Roman Forum, which was the political and social and religious center of the Roman Empire, there was a top security prison that was built in the 7th century BC. Roman historians tell us that this was the first prison in Rome, and to this day it is the oldest in Rome and one of the oldest in the world. The prisoner, the prison is known as the Mamertine prison. It was named during medieval times, probably because there was a temple devoted to the god Mars in the vicinity. The prison was in operation for nearly a thousand years, and it became an execution site as well. This prison consisted of two levels. There was an upper chamber that would hold prisoners for a season until they would be paraded outside in front of the citizens of Rome down via Sacra, towards the temple to Jupiter, and some of them would be sacrificed as a victory sacrifice, while others would be taken back and lowered into the second chamber, the lower level, and they would stay there for an extended period of time, awaiting either their strangulation or decapitation, or they would just die from starvation. In that lower level, it was built on a spring, a natural spring, which meant it was always damp and wet, and the conditions were unhealthy and dark and torturous, and of course the prisoners were claustrophobic in that location. It was called the death cell. Archaeologists have found and speculated that because they found so many bones in that lower level, and there was a kind of an escape conduit from that lower level outside, that the understanding of the people of that time was that this was the conduit from the world of the living to the world of the dead. This foul-smelling, dark, damp chamber was the place from which you would enter hell. The prisoners would be lowered from the top chamber into the lower chamber and wait until their execution or just await their death. One historian said the following, The prisoners who were held here were all leaders of enemy populations or traitors to Rome. People who were believed to have endangered the survival of Rome. The idea was that they had to disappear. They had no right to be part of human society. So they were symbolically removed from the world and confined to the underworld. This prison was built for the worst of the worst in the Roman Empire. And... In this prison, the whole point of being a part of this prison was to become ultimately a spectacle, a public spectacle, to be humiliated, to be denigrated, to be dehumanized, and then ultimately sent on your way to hell. But in addition to these traitors 
and those who committed treason against the Roman Empire, there was another type of prisoner held in this prison. As far back as the 4th century, church tradition says that Peter and Paul were held in this prison before their own execution. In the year 64, the Roman Emperor Nero designated Christians as the enemies of Rome. And he accused them of burning the city of Rome in July of AD 64. According to ancient historians, it was most likely Nero himself who set the city ablaze in order to make room for a house he wanted to build, which you can visit today. It's right next to the Colosseum. It's called the Golden House. As the Romans demanded justice for the burning of nearly 80% of the city, Nero blamed the Christians. And this began the very first official Roman persecution against the Christians. It was shortly before Paul wrote 2 Timothy that he was imprisoned here. And then he would taken out of this prison, the Mamertine prison, taken about five miles outside the city of Rome and decapitated. Shortly before Paul's execution, Peter too spent time in the prison and he too was taken out and crucified upside down. His final words to his own wife, who also would become a martyr right next to him, were as follows, as he tried to encourage her and comfort her as she watched him be crucified upside down. He said to her, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. In 2 Peter, five times Peter says, remember. The message that he had for his wife was the same message that he had for the Christians who would read 2 Peter. He wanted them to remember. Remember the truth spoken to you, he writes. Remember the words spoken by the prophets. Remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior. Peter was concerned that the people that too were fleeing the persecution of Nero, and they fled from the city of Rome to modern-day Turkey. They went to Asia Minor. Hoping to survive, he writes to them and encourages them to remember certain truths. It was a year ago that we studied 1 Peter. And if you remember that study, we learned that these Christians lost their family members. Some lost their houses because Nero blamed them for the fire. And Peter was still free. He was still the pastor at that point, And he wrote that first letter to them. Just a few years later, he would write 2 Peter. And according to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. In other words, he's writing to the same group of Christians to whom he wrote the first letter. And while he wrote to them, in the middle of their persecution, their, their, um, <clears throat> their hostilities that they were experiencing from Nero... In chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 Peter, he says, The one who desires to see good days and to see the good life. In other words, even in the middle of persecution and opposition for your faith, Peter says it is possible to see good days. It's possible to live the good life. Because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he says in chapter 1. And because you have relationships in the church. He says in the second half of 1 Peter. But now in the second letter, he focuses on the godly life. He encourages them to live the good life in the first letter. Now he says, now you need to live the godly life. And again, these are the same Christians, and they're still under threat from 
Nero's persecution. And he says, there are external threats from the Roman authorities to you, but there are also internal threats from false teachers that he will address in chapter 2. And these false teachers have infiltrated the church, and Peter is calling them out and warning the faithful Christians against their deceptions. And so as we look at 2 Peter for the next three weeks, in chapter 1, he calls us to pursue the good life, the godly life, rather. In chapter 2, he will give us the picture of the ungodly life. It's an antithesis to the godly life that he expects every Christian to live, as he paints a portrait of the false teachers, those who promote immorality with their lives and with their message. And in chapter 3, he will speak of the promises given to people for the, good life, for the godly life and for the, those who are ungodly. He reminds us in chapter 3 of the new heavens and the new earth. And because of that promise that is coming, we need to live lives that are spotless and blameless. So in the context of this future eschatological promise, he calls people towards holiness. So I think as you'll see as we go through this book over the next few weeks, that there is a complement that this book provides for the study in Minor Prophets. We learn about the day of the Lord. We learn about the coming judgment and coming salvation. That is what this book is about. As Peter faces his own execution and warns other Christians that the day of the Lord is coming. And he wants us to remember that. So as Peter begins, in chapter 1, verse 1, he writes the following. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who receive the faith of the same kind as ours. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He says, to the individuals who received a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter is writing as a Jew, which indicates he's writing primarily to Gentile believers. They have the same exact faith that he has as a Jew, even though they are Gentiles. And this faith was given to them, according to verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He equates God with Savior Jesus Christ in this first verse. Suggesting and indicating, theologically, Jesus is God. This is one of those passages in the New Testament that proves that Jesus is God. The way he structures this statement in the original language. That God and Savior is Jesus Christ. But he says, we receive this faith by the righteousness of our Savior. This is the beloved doctrine where our sin was imputed to Jesus Christ and his righteousness was imputed to us. And that is the essence of the gospel that we believe and that we preach. Is that we live, we were born in sin and we live in sin and we rebel against God. We heard so many faithful testimonies this evening to that end. And at the right time, God enters our lives with the message of the gospel through somebody who's faithfully proclaiming it. And we hear it, and God gives us life through regeneration, and we believe it, and we repent, and we follow him. And part of that regeneration and justification is the fact that our sin is imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. And we become children of God. That is what Paul is, Peter is referring to in verse 1. We have faith by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 2 he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. While he calls us to the godly life, he understands that that life is impossible. Apart from the grace that is found 
in God and Jesus Christ. He started the first letter with very similar words. When he said, may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. And now he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He understands that we cannot live the Christian life. We cannot be successful in godliness or sanctification or holiness apart from the grace that we need. This never-ending, overflowing grace from Jesus Christ. And it comes to us, according to verse 3, through the true knowledge of him. In verse 2, in the knowledge of God and Jesus. That is the means by which we experience this grace. And in verse 3, he says... His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. From the very beginning, Peter will feature knowledge as the means by which we will accomplish godliness. And if you look at the very last verse of this book, verse 18 of chapter 3, Peter calls us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So whether it's the beginning of the book or the very end of the book, his message is the same, that we are to focus on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we need to live godly lives. We need his grace that is given to us because of our relationship with him. There was an understanding of grace in the ancient Roman Empire. Cicero, one of the most famous ancient writers and orators, viewed grace as excessive favor that is extended to a person in a court setting, but it was allocated based on your social class. So the higher the social class you had or you were from in the Roman Empire, the more grace would be extended to you in the court. But when you look at the New Testament, God does not distribute his grace through a tiered system. Everybody gets the same amount of grace. How much grace? According to John chapter 1, in Christ Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. Limitless grace. Abounding grace. And according to Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So now Paul links grace with godliness. That is the reason why grace was given to us, is so that we would live godly lives. And so Peter begins the same message. Grace is extended to you, and God expects you to live a life of godliness. And Peter would feature godliness and ungodliness, not just through those two terms, but through various synonyms. Because this is the main theme of the book. So godliness appears five times, but then you have statements like moral excellence, self-control, purification from your former sins, holiness, righteousness, spotlessness, and blamelessness. All those are synonyms from the same idea, godliness. The antonyms are the ungodly, corruption, lust, sensuality, greed, lies, lawlessness, unrighteousness, pleasure, seduction, adultery, unceasing sin being a slave of corruption, and being defiled by the world. Those are all synonyms to ungodliness. And so they appear throughout the entire letter to make sure that the reader doesn't miss the point that you as a Christian are expected to live a life 
of godliness. And if you don't, there are certain consequences that God will impose. Judgment, as we'll see in the future weeks. Peter's message is simple. There is no neutral zone. You're either living a life of godliness or you're living a life of ungodliness. And remember, he calls men and women who are fleeing for their lives, who are being persecuted, who are experiencing trials, he calls them to a godly life. Meaning we don't get a break. No matter how difficult life is, we don't get a break from pursuing godliness. That is the message of this letter. And so as we study the first chapter this evening, I'd like to present to you five pillars on which the godly life rests. Five pillars on which the godly life rests. And the first is we have a promise for the godly life. God has given us a promise that what he expects will actually accomplish. In verse 3, he says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So you may become partakers of the divine nature. In verse 3 and in verse 4, he says, God had made a promise. As he calls you to a life of godliness, he makes a promise. He's given you everything that you need to live a life of godliness. And these are magnificent promises. They're precious promises. And they will make you to be a partaker of the divine nature. In other words, morally, we're being transformed into the likeness of God. We have everything we need to live a godly life. We never have an excuse that is justified before God why I sinned, why I committed that ungodly act or said that ungodly thing. Tom Schreiner comments on this passage and says, godliness is simply living a life like God. It's to be like God. That's the simple definition of godliness. And Peter wants to emphasize this promise for us, and so he places That at the very beginning of the text, to us, everything has been given that pertains to life and godliness. That's the first thing he wants the reader in the original Greek to read. It's to you, it has been given. You lack nothing to live godly. God did not withhold any resource from you that you would attain godliness. Peter knew what it was like to fail Christ. In the upper room, just hours before the crucifixion, he declared in front of the other ten disciples Judas had left by this point. He declared that I will follow you even if the rest abandon you, and I will die for you. A few hours later, he had an opportunity three times to stand with Jesus in John chapter 18. To confess that he was Jesus' disciple. When he was asked a simple question three times by different people, aren't you his disciple? Your accent gives you away. In fact, I think I saw you in the garden of Gethsemane just hours ago. And every single time, Peter was so afraid, he denied. And Mark tells us in chapter 14 that on the third occasion, when he was asked a third time, he began to repeatedly deny. 
any affiliation with Jesus. And he began to repeatedly call curses upon himself. In other words, he was so afraid to associate with Jesus that he would rather be damned by God to eternal hell. That's what it means to call curses upon yourself in Mark 14. He would rather be condemned by God to judgment than to stand with Jesus in that moment before his crucifixion. Peter knew what it was like to fail Jesus, to fail in faithfulness to Jesus. He knew what the emotional pain it would cause. And we know shortly after that third denial, he leaves and weeps bitterly. He was emotionally moved by his denial. So when Peter calls us to a life of godliness, he wants to make sure we understand from the very beginning, God has made a promise. That you have everything you need to live the godly life. And that will prove that you possess eternal life. In verse 3, pertaining to life, that's referring to eternal life. Not just living physically in this world. The terminology that he uses is consistently used to, defer, to refer to eternal life. So how does this happen? Well, if you keep reading in verse 3, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And this takes us to our second pillar. That is, God has given us a provision to live the godly life. We have a promise that this life is possible. And we have a provision, and that is through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowledge is a key theme in this book. Sixteen times Peter refers to knowledge. He uses various synonyms as well as he speaks of knowledge and knowing Jesus Christ. And what he says in verse 3 is that apart from knowing Jesus Christ, it is impossible to live the godly life. Right before verse 3, he speaks of Jesus our Lord. In other words, we're talking about knowledge of Jesus, not just general knowledge. He's the closest referent to verse 3. Beyond that, and he opens this book speaking of knowing Jesus, and in chapter 3, verse 18, I already read this verse, he speaks of knowing Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus is the agent who grants us access to this power and knowledge that moves us toward godliness. And that happens, this progress in godliness, through continued knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Peter says in verse 4, if we do this, if we hold on to these precious and magnificent promises, through them we will become partakers of the divine nature. We'll be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, we all with an unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So Paul says there's a transformation that takes place every single time you look into the glory of Christ. Every single time you study the image of Christ, who he is, as we know, and we know that is in Scripture. From John 5, from Luke 24, we know that Jesus says, Scriptures speak of me. And so the more time we spend in Scripture, the more effective and successful we'll be in the life of godliness. And both Paul and Peter use glory as the motivation that draws us to Christ. In the end of verse 3, he says, by his own glory and excellence. That's how that happens. 
They understood that Jesus Christ is glorious. And therefore were drawn to him. Think about Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, when he gives us his autobiography, who he was before he became a Christian, excelling in everything that he pursued, the best of the best as a student with Gamaliel. And then he says, I count all that as rubbish. And he says in verse verse 8 of Philippians 3, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he focuses his entire life to this one thing. This one thing I do, he says in verse 14. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was able to focus his entire life to a single pursuit, a single ambition, a single goal. And he said, for me that is to know Jesus Christ. If someone said this one thing characterizes your life, What would that be? Would it be the pursuit of early retirement? Would it be the pursuit of a spouse? Would it be the pursuit of the next position at your company? Or perhaps a terminal degree? Or perhaps a certain number of clicks on your page? When people think of you, what do they think about as the main driver for your life? This is what drives this person every single day. Paul says for him, it was to know Christ. And that is what it's supposed to be for every single Christian. And John says, the apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, he says that the proof that we are his children is this ongoing process of pursuing godliness. He writes, beloved, we are children of God. But it has not yet been manifested as what we will be. We know that when he is manifest, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the continual purification from sin is evidence that we long to see him. That we are his children and that is the goal of our lives. And Peter says in verse 4, it is a process that we're undergoing. We may become partakers. That's the indication that we're going through a process. As frustrating as it is for us to fail and to sin. And the desire is there to overcome all sin immediately. We wish we didn't struggle with sin any longer. But the statement here that Peter makes is this is a process. We are becoming partakers. One day that process will end. One day we will be perfectly holy just as he is. And we saw that in 1 John chapter 3. When he appears, that is the moment of final transformation into the moral likeness of Christ. The moment of glorification. And until that day, we are working, we are diligently pursuing holiness as we try to pry our fingers off of the things of this world. And so John says in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. That is a daily struggle. Constantly refusing the world's temptations. And Spurgeon explains this so eloquently when he says, Christian, vanish forever all thought of indulging the flesh if you would live in the power of your risen Lord. It were ill 
that a man who is alive in Christ should dwell in the corruption of sin. Why seek ye the living among the dead, said the angel to Magdalene? Should the living dwell in the sepulcher? Should divine life be immured in the charnel house of fleshly lust? How can we partake of the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of Belial? Surely, believer, from open lusts and sins you are delivered. Have you also escaped from the more secret and delusive twigs of satanic fowler? Have you come forth from the lust of pride? Have you escaped from sloth? Have you escaped from carnal security? Are you seeking day by day to live above worldliness, the pride of life, and the ensnaring vice of avarice? Remember, it is for this that you have been enriched with the treasures of God. If you be indeed the chosen of God and beloved by him, do not suffer all the lavish treasure of grace to be wasted upon you. Follow after holiness. It is the Christian's crown and glory. An unholy church, it's useless to the world and of no esteem among men. It's an abomination. Hell's laughter, heaven's abhorrence. The worst worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. O Christian, the vows of God are upon you. You are God's priest. Act as such. You are God's king. Reign over your lusts. You are God's chosen. Do not associate with Belial. Heaven is your portion. Live like a heavenly spirit. So shall you prove that you have true faith in Jesus. For there cannot be faith in the heart unless there be holiness in life. Those are Spurgeon's words, reaffirming the message of these opening verses, that a true believer pursues godliness. If you have been given faith by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then your life shows that. And so in verse 4, it says, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Because we're fixing our gaze on glory, on excellence, according to verse 3. And these promises are precious in verse 4. Peter loves the word precious. He uses it all over the place in the first letter, in the second letter. In the first chapter of the first letter, he says, the outcome of our faith is more precious than gold. Later in chapter 1, he says, we have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he says, Jesus is the precious stone in God's sight. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, to those who believe, to them he is precious. You see, that is the motivation for a life of godliness. We view Jesus as precious. That's what Pastor John talked about this morning if you were here. Assurance and joy in the Christian life comes from loving Christ and knowing Christ and pursuing Christ and obeying Christ. And that is the joy above all joys. He said supernatural joy, joy that you can't even verbalize because Jesus Christ is precious. When Jesus restored Peter after his denials by the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21, he asked him the same question three times, do you love me? In other words, do you have affection for me? Do you view me as precious more than these? That's the the ultimate measurement of our pursuit of Christ. Do you love 
Jesus Christ. And God has made the provision for us. Everything we need to live the godly life, we have. But we have to persevere. And that is the third pillar on which the godly life rests. We persevere in the godly life. And that takes us to verses 5 through 11. And so Peter writes, for this very reason in verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. He gives us seven virtues as he calls us to live and persevere in the godly life. And the emphasis falls in verse 5 on all diligence, right at the beginning of the verse. Supply or apply all diligence. We have been given all things. Now, apply all diligence. There's a parallel that he builds here. God has given you everything you need. He hasn't withheld anything from you for you to be godly. Now, your responsibility is to apply all diligent effort. To what degree, verse 8 says, if these qualities are yours and increasing. In other words, there should be a progressive improvement that you observe and people observe of your life. The idea behind that term is there is an overflow of these virtues. You are super abounding in these virtues. And if you're not diligently applying all effort, then verse 9 says you are short-sighted. You are blind. You've forgotten your purification from your former sins. So those are the two options. If we're not diligently pursuing godliness, we've forgotten from what we have been saved. And we've forgotten that our destination is a new heaven, a new earth, and in chapter 3, he'll say, where righteousness dwells. John Calvin said this, Since this task is hard and one of immense labor, he bids us put off the corruption that is in us and strive earnestly to this purpose. He means by this that there is no place for laziness or for following the calling of God easily or carelessly, but a zeal is necessary. Zeal, no laziness, no carelessness, striving earnestly toward godliness. Those are Calvin's words. And the seven virtues are simple. Moral excellence back in verse 5. And the imagery here is a rich patron being so lavish with the people in his community, in his patronage, that he just lavishes them with gifts. There is no limit to how far he'll go to please his patrons. And so we're talking about limitless excellence, limitless moral excellence. Back in verse 3, we are drawn to Christ because of his glory and excellence. Now, Peter applies the same terminology to us and says, you, as a believer, are to apply the same effort, and you are to live a life of excellence, moral excellence in verse 5, which simply means virtuous deeds that are praiseworthy. And the best way to summarize Jesus' life of excellence is in Mark chapter 7, verse 37. When the people, the crowds, they were watching Jesus perform miracles, it says they repeatedly kept saying this statement, he does all things well. He does all things well. That's the summary statement of Jesus' excellence. 
So when people look at your life, can they apply the same statement to you, to me? That believer does everything well. That is the moral excellence we aspire to. But then in verse 5, he says, in your moral excellence, knowledge. And then he repeats knowledge in verse 6. Again, it's this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He'll repeat knowledge again in in chapter 3. The contrast to this is in chapter 2, verse 12. When he begins to describe the ungodly, the false teachers, he said, these are like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. In the destruction of those creatures, they will be destroyed. So the parallel is those who have no knowledge, they are completely unreasonable and they'll be destroyed. But those who have knowledge pursue godliness. And then in verse 6, he goes to self-control. Having this control over all of your desires. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And it becomes the foundation for the next virtue. Perseverance. In the middle of verse 6. Perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Perseverance is simply self-control that is consistent. It's being able to endure temptation under pressure. It's this ongoing commitment to self-purification from your sins no matter what happens in your life. And that leads to godliness at the end of verse 6. At the beginning of verse 7, in your godliness, brotherly kindness. So we live a life of godliness just like God. We radiate godliness. It was said of Eric Little, who was the Olympian in 1920s, who had the world open to him. His fellow athletes went on to become significant shapers of that era. They changed the world. He decided to become a missionary in China. And when he was imprisoned, his reputation was such that he would radiate godliness to every prisoner. The circumstances didn't matter. He died a horrible death, if you know the story. But the reputation he left behind in prison, he radiated godliness. How do you express that? Verse 7, through brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, You have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brothers. Fervently love one another from the heart. So from the very beginning, our salvation is demonstrated by loving other believers. It was Jesus who said shortly before his crucifixion, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's John 13. So if these seven virtues are visible in our lives, where does that lead us? Well, in verses 8 through 11, Peter says, you will experience four results from this kind of a life that is persevering in godliness. Verse 8 says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they're abounding, they're limitless, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, now we become productive for Christ. If we're pursuing the knowledge of Christ, if we're pursuing godliness, then our lives are productive. In John 15, Jesus says, if you abide in me, then you will produce much fruit and God will be glorified. That's the expectation here. The knowledge of Christ leads to a productive Christian life. And the terminology here in the original Greek is about employment or unemployment. 
So think of your life as a Christian as either being employed and doing something for Christ or being unemployed. And the wages are going to be received in eternity if you are employed for Christ. So our lives are characterized by these virtues. And the first thing that results from that is that we are productive for Christ. But secondly, in verse 9, we are separating ourselves from sin. We demonstrate to ourselves and to others that we have been purified from our former sins. And then in verse 10, that leads us to stability. Stability in our faith. Verse 10 says, Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Back in verse 5, he says, be diligent. Apply all diligence. In verse 10, he says, be all the more diligent. He elevates the expectation of diligence even more. He adds an adverb to say, you have to do this. This is urgent. You can't slow down. You can't be slacking off. There is no place for laziness in the Christian life that pursues godliness. Be all the more diligent to make sure that these virtues are true of you. You're increasing in them, verse 8, and then you will never stumble. That is the point of this morning's message. Assurance of salvation is given to those who love Christ in 1 Peter 1. And to those who pursue a life of godliness, you will never stumble in your faith. And then verse 11 comes in. In this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It will be richly supplied to you. In verse 5, we're to supply all moral excellence, right in the middle of the verse. If we do that, then he promises that God will supply abundantly the eternal kingdom to us. He keeps on building parallels between what God is doing or what God is promising and what is expected of us as his children. God has given you everything you need. Now you need to give everything that you have to live a life of godliness. All diligence, and you can see in your own text, verse 5, verse 10, verse 15, diligence just keeps popping up because he expects the Christian to put in all diligence in pursuit of godliness. And the difference between the people that do and don't is in verse 9, verses 9 and 11. Those who don't are short-sighted and blind. Those who do are anticipating entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Savior. That is what motivated the Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11. As they separated themselves from their previous lives like Moses and Abraham and others. And it says that they were looking For a city, a heavenly one, whose architect and builder is God. You see, this eternal kingdom from verse 11 was driving them forward in their life of faithfulness to God. If we're not consumed in gazing into the glory of Christ, then don't be surprised if you lack assurance. Don't be surprised if these virtues are not present in your life. Don't be surprised if you keep falling back into the same sinful habits. Don't be surprised if your life is characterized by fruitlessness. Because the gravitational pull to the things of this world is strong. 
And in that moment, Peter says, don't be short-sighted. Don't be blind. Instead, remember that the eternal kingdom of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly granted to you if you pursue this life. It's a call to perseverance. But Peter understands that we forget, and so in verses 12 through 15, he repeatedly says, I will keep reminding you of these things. I will always be ready to remind you of these things, he says in verse 12. Even though you already know them. We know these things, right? I I would bet that most of you, if you've been coming to church, this church or another faithful church, you know these truths. You know that we're supposed to be godly. That's what Peter is saying in verse 12. You know these truths, but I'm going to keep reminding you of them. And you've been established in the truth that is present within you. Verse 13, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. And yet, I will be diligent. So as diligent as we're supposed to be in pursuing godliness, Peter says, I will be that diligent to remind you of these things so that you, after my departure, will be able to remember them. That's the commitment that Peter, as a pastor, to these suffering Christians made. That's why we need the church. That's why we need preaching. That's why we need the Bible. That's why we need each other. Because we forget and we deviate from the path of godliness and somebody has to remind us. Come back. Remember the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We forget. Studies have demonstrated that within an hour, so at 8.30, you will forget 56% of what I said. Tomorrow, you'll forget 66%. And by next Sunday, you'll forget 75%. We forget. And so Peter says, we need to remind each other that this is what is expected of us. And what is the result? Verse 12, you will be stabilized. Established in the truth that's within you. He refers back to the closing verses of 1 Peter 5. When he says, God will stabilize your faith. And he picks up the same vocabulary, puts it into this verse in verse 12, and says, God will stabilize your faith if this is the kind of life that you live. And remember, in Luke 22, when Jesus predicted Peter's failing, when he told him, you will betray me. Satan has come. He's asked to sift you as wheat. I am praying for you. But once you've repented, stabilize the brothers. The same vocabulary. And from that point on, Peter never forgot Jesus' final challenge to him. Stabilize the faith of the brothers. And so he says, it is the right thing for me to do, verse 13. I will never stop reminding you of these things so that you will be stable in the truth. That is Peter's commitment. That should be our commitment. Peter knew that he was going to die. And he did die shortly after writing this letter. And he said, after my departure, in verse 15, remember these things. And Peter doesn't use a standard term for death in verse 15. Instead, the term that he uses is exodus. It's used only one other time in the New Testament to refer to death. In Luke chapter 9. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he previews his future glory to Peter, James, and John. And he's talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. His departure. 
And Jesus made a promise in Luke 9, before the transfiguration happened, that some of the disciples standing there, referring to James, John, and Peter, they will not see death until they see a preview of the kingdom of God. So the transfiguration was a preview of the kingdom of God. So the vocabulary of the exodus with Jesus in Luke 9, with Peter, here in Second Peter, has to do with a, pre- a future glory. As I depart this life into the eternal glory, remember these things. That's what he's saying to us. Jesus referred to his own death as transition to glory. Peter did not view himself and his future death as simply ceasing to exist. He viewed that moment as a transfer from this life to glory. That's how a Christian views his life or her life. We're moving towards glory, and that moment of the, the last time we take a breath in this life, we enter glory in the next second. That's the departure. That's the transition. And so Peter says, I'm not going to stop reminding you of these things. Because you are stabilized in the truth. And he takes us to our final pillar. The power for this godly life. We have the promise in verse 3. We have everything we need. We have the provision through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need to persevere. Peter reminds us that this needs to keep happening. That is the pursuit of the godly life. And then finally, verses 16 through 21, he says, this is where the power comes from. You have the truth. He said this in verse 12. It's present in you. You need to be stabilized in this truth. And now he said, this truth that I talked to you about, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the entrance into his kingdom. He says, I didn't make this up, verse 16. It's not a cleverly devised tale. Uh, The Greek here refers to ancient Roman and Greek myths, but gods and goddesses made up by humans. He said, this is not the content of our message. Rather, it is made known to you by the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, have a, I had a preview of this power. And so in verses 17 and 18, he talks about the transfiguration. When he was on the mountain and he heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We received or heard this utterance on the holy mountain. So he's reflecting back to Luke 9 and says, I had a preview of this power, this majesty, this glory. I didn't make this up, that Jesus is coming back in glory. His subjective experience proves what he's trying to teach them. But then he turns in verses 19 through 21 and says, but there's also an objective truth that we can lean on And that truth is sure. Verse 19, he says, We have the prophetic word made sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In verse 10, he says, you will make your calling and choosing sure, certain, if you live a godly life. He picks up the same word and says, now let's look at the word of God. The word of God is certain. It's reliable. It's sure, according to verse 19. We have an objective standard by which we measure revelation about Jesus Christ. And at this point, He was referring to the Old Testament 
and some of the New Testament had been written already. And we know from chapter 3 that he considered the New Testament writings also as scripture. We'll talk about it in a couple weeks. So for him, this scripture, this prophetic material was holy and it was reliable. But it functions as a light in a dark place, which takes us back to the imagery of purification. But scripture serves that function of a lamp in a dark place until a certain moment. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. According to Revelation 21, 22 rather, and Revelation 2, Jesus is the morning star. So until Jesus returns and fulfills all scripture, the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, until that moment, the moment of glorification, until then, scripture functions as a lamp, as a lighthouse. This is a nautical term. It it was a guide for a ship to get to safety. It functions as a lighthouse in our lives, bringing us to safety until Jesus Christ comes. Until then, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So Peter wraps this whole chapter up by saying, we have the word of God that is reliable. It is sure. And the entire trinity is involved in the formation of scripture. God the Father is the, or, is the author. We see that at the end of verse 21. The Holy Spirit superintends the process of writing scripture. And Jesus Christ is involved as the morning star who fulfills scripture. The trinity is involved in the authorship and then the application of scripture to our lives. And Peter says, our power for the godly life comes from this scripture. The same power that transfigured Christ, that ultimately resurrected Christ, is the same power that in verse 3 says, seeing that his divine power has given us everything we need for the godly life. See, the power for our godliness comes from the word of God. As we look into the face of Christ and we find him in scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're transformed into the moral likeness of Christ. And when we see him face to face, in that moment, we will be just like him. Until that day, Peter says, pursue the godly life. Let us pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that we have been saved by you and that we're being sanctified by you. That we have everything we need to live the godly life that you call us to live. And I do pray for every single person here that that would be our commitment. That you would transform this church because of the commitment we all make to live holy lives, pure lives, godly lives. To display these virtues that we just studied. And to pursue Christ and to know Christ intimately. I pray for those who are here visiting. Perhaps do not have a relationship with Christ. That you would enter their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and give them life. Apply the righteousness of Christ to them. Give them faith. Lead them to repentance. And then put them on the path toward godliness. We pray this to the honor of of your name. Amen.